live from Studio Breezy. I'm Breezy, and we are here to talk soccer nerd stuff. How to be a soccer nerd is the working title for this podcast, and I am here for the first time in Studio Breezy with Smitty. Hey, I've been here once, like the first time. Were you in the studio? In the studio? ago, yeah. Oh, okay. It was me, you, and Matt talking All right. about. We it were previewing the, the legend preview. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Okay, I take it back. I take it back. But and then the the, the side of the infamous, uh, we're not three goals better than New Amsterdam. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And then Matthew is here. So I guess I have redone the studio a little bit since then. I've run some cables. I think producer Jay will be proud of us, or proud of me, I should say. Um, but yeah, we're here to talk. Uh, not interviews, not even season previews. Um, the genesis of this show comes from two places for me, and I'll let uh, you guys explain it a little bit more if you if you guys have different takes on it. But um, a friend hit me up and was like, "Hey, you know, I've I've been listening to your podcast for a while, and I have a confession to make. It's been two hours of me listening to this show, and I have no idea what a six is. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, like I, I, you know, I, I, I just don't, I don't know. Like you, you really never explained it." essentially. And then he didn't, he wasn't saying like, you know, you need to explain this, but also like, that's the underlying thing there. Like if we mentioned the six, the eight, the 10, we mentioned center backs, wingers, whatever, a lot. And maybe we're not doing a good enough job. And Smitty actually came to me afterwards and was like, Hey man, I think we should do some explainer pods and, and I'll let him like talk a little bit about how he thinks of it. But yeah, totally. Like we should talk about how we think about explaining soccer. So we are all three pretty big soccer nerds, pretty big nerds in general, but especially for soccer. And so we've uh, titled this how to be a soccer nerd. Maybe that'll change, but we all, none of us grew up playing soccer at a high level. None of us even really grew up playing it. I think Matt's played at the highest level of all of us in middle school. So <laughs> yikes. So like, how did we get hey, here? Let's not discredit his tryout goals. What tryout goals? Wow. That's rude. Um, so, okay, I've that's fair. You, I've so, got your back, Matt. He's Thank for you. he's for sure played at the highest level then. Um, uh, but anyway, so the idea here is in this episode will be the first of many. We'll have to figure out how we're going to do this and if we're going to do um, them in a different format. But for now, this is going to be how, uh, how we think about the position of the six. What is a six? Who plays the six? What the six has looked like in the history of CFC? And a little bit about formations in that because you'll have to understand only certain formations use a six and some use two sixes or one six and whatever else. So we'll get into that stuff. But first, Smitty, tell us about your soccer journey into soccer nerddom. And also if you have anything to add on kind of what you're, how you're thinking of these episodes, these soccer nerd episodes, these how to be a soccer nerd episodes. Yeah, I think the episodes could be important because a lot of folks have come to CFC not as a historic soccer fan. So you're there to have a good time. Your love for soccer grows. And I don't know that there is a team sport as complex tactically as soccer with the low amount of points that are scored and the different type of tactical nuances that you can have and just how long the game has been played. There's so much to it. There's so much that we still don't even know, but there's, you know, and we'll talk about our nerd journeys, I guess, but um, there's just a lot to learn. And the more you learn, the more you learn that you need to learn. Um, so I would say like the way that I have learned about soccer outside of just watching a ton, because that's what my weekends, week nights, weekdays the obsession yeah i work from home now so i've got my ipad up and something streaming on there and somewhere throughout the world 
Um, I love to watch YouTube videos about soccer. So there's a few channels that I follow for news. There's a few channels that I follow for tactical things. So to call out two that I would suggest that people go and watch, the first one being um, the TIFO channel. They do excellent explainers about literally anything. Um, and then secondly, there's another channel called uh, James Lawrence Alcott. Um, and he does a lot of new stuff, but he also loves to talk about why a team is playing good, what their starting positions are, which is not necessarily what a formation is, but it kind of is. And we'll, I'm sure we'll have a, have an episode about what a formation is and how little it actually means. But, um, those are, I would say like for a starting point, those are, those are two good ones, but they're not like too complicated that you don't know what's going on. So what motivated you to start learning a lot about tactics and like really, cause you could watch games just root for a team mm-hmm. without being like obsessed with the intricacies of why the six and the eight are moving, how they're moving and how they're interchanging with the right back. Like, and I know that you think about those things. So like right. what, how, and why did you get there? I'm just as um, an obsessive compulsive person like I think all three of us are if I'm going to put time and energy towards something I want to learn everything about it I've been the same way with you know 50 million things throughout my life like you know movies and basketball you know which I played a lot growing up and oh god what else just there's like there's too much (laughs) so yeah, I just I just like to get obsessive about things, basically. Cool. Yeah, I, I feel that in my soul. Matthew? So it's pretty embarrassing that I've played at the highest level in this room because when I played middle school soccer, I did not know the rules of soccer, absent of, like, don't use your hands. I'm serious. I did not know the rules. No one ever explained the rules to me. That might have been a failure of my middle school coach, but that's beside the point. Um, all all I all I knew was the like the Harry Red nap, like just go fucking run around a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> like that, that that was it. Um, but it, if you if you want to know my soccer nerdy journey, I think you have to go back to baseball statistics uh, in the newspaper, the box scores, the. Uh, I don't know if it was called like an almanac or something like that. Yeah, like in baseball the, almanac. Like yeah. at, at the end of the season, like the, the full published record of the year before. I loved those. Me too. Uh, did you memorize I didn't the know back we, of baseball cards as well? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I didn't know we. I didn't know we had this baseball thing. I mean, I knew Matt and I had a little bit of baseball in common, but I didn't know we all liked the baseball, the stupid baseball nerdy stuff. What's baseball? First, baseball was my first like my first sporting love. Yeah, mine too. Mine uh, too. Like it was just one of those things that like you know we could a game would be on. Uh, and I'd, wa- I'd often watch it with my dad, who just like wanted to put baseball on the TV. Mm-hmm. Braves, Cubs didn't matter. Like just- he was an old newsman too, so yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Black coffee, newspaper, and baseball. Basically, basically. <laughs> Which, by the way, that explains who Matt is <laughs> to almost a T, except it's soccer. So, uh, so I, I really got into baseball statistics uh, for a long time. Loved loved doing it, uh, being obsessive about it. As as I grew up. Uh, Baseball became less important because I was doing more things after school and it really shifted into basketball, except not in the same, uh, not in the same way. Like I didn't have an NBA team I rooted for. 
or watched all their games for uh I didn't have a college team yet either. This is before this is before Xavier. So uh humble brag. It was it was it was middle school and high school basketball for me. Um and and I even, you know, like after after games um well actually no, I I gave up I gave up even trying to play basketball because I was five foot six, short, you know, white, t- not a great shooter, like terrible ball handler. Like basically there's no excuse for me ever to be on a basketball court. And I was asked to do varsity statistics for all four years of high school for both the boys and the girls teams. So did you wear glasses at the time? Yes. That seems so stereotypical. Like, Hey, let the kid with glasses do stats. <laughs> So I, I held, I had a Palm Pilot back when Palm Pilots were a thing. Dope. That had a, that, <laughs> that had a, that had a, uh... <laughs> sorry, that's the wrong one. Hold on. Oh, that's not what I was going for. That's for your Palm Pilot. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Rip. It had, so there was, there was a program on that that had like some sort of like basketball statistics, like record keeping. It included a shot chart, by the way. Nice. So it was pretty cool. And so after... You know, after experimenting with a little bit in eighth grade, like I was, I was ready to go for, you know, my freshman year when, when I was keeping stats. And so at first it was just, you know, we're keeping stats like on the fly, like watching games, like sitting on the bench, just like tracking everything at the same time. It evolved over a couple of years to, I could look at a, rep- at a report real quick at halftime and be like, Hey, just FYI, these types of things are working. These types of things aren't working. I knew enough about basketball at the time that I could remember in my head, like what kind of sets we were running to generate those types of shots with the goal of, you know, the basketball coach will always be smarter than me, but a couple little pieces of information, I might be able to see through statistics that they just like other things were going on. Uh, And that's kind of where it started. The nerdy part for me. And then where the soccer part came, came in, uh, I just started watching a lot of soccer. Like CFC is the reason why I became a soccer fan. Uh, I still didn't know anything about it for the first five, six years. And then it's probably, um, you know, I was watching more and more watching, I was watching Spurs games on the weekends. Uh, when, when they got, the, when they got the NBC contract uh, back in like 2013, 2014. Uh, and just over time you watch and watch and watch enough. And you start picking up on things, playing FIFA, you know, mm-hmm. the video game was was actually probably my best introduction for how things were supposed to work. Yeah. Yeah, because like, you had the formation on the screen and you put the players in the positions. Yeah, and then, yeah. you've got the formation on the screen and everything like that. But but FIFA, especially back then, was kind of like regimented. Yeah, formulaic. Yeah. So like you got, to, you got to figure out kind of how like where players were supposed to go, like occupying what type of positions. Mm-hmm. And over time and, and and I'll credit I'll credit. Peter Fuller for this too. When we became friends, when he became the, the coach here, like we would just hang out and talk soccer. And so I'd be able to take what, what CFC was doing on the field, uh, ask questions, learn about it, get the actual, you know, straight from the head coach, like what, what the kind of, what the idea was behind, behind certain things. Uh, and, and just over time, it's all like, I've, I have fully, I have fully nerded out. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that makes sense. So I'll give you mine real quick because mine actually parallels you guys a lot. So I'm a giant soccer. I'm a giant nerd when it comes to like stuff. So I get I don't usually like stuff a little bit. I'm either all in or all out. And I was all in on baseball growing up. Uh, I also 
played basketball at the highest level I've played any sport. Like, as I know you did too, Smitty, like as far as your you know basketball career, I would assume you would say that was the sport you were best at, right? Mm-hmm. Playing. Yeah. So like, and I know Matt played, Matt liked basketball, whatever else. So I loved basketball. I didn't have an NBA team. Very similar to you. I was a Braves fanatic. I knew the minor league system. I knew advanced stats. I knew a lot of metrics. Like I just rewatched Moneyball the other day because Smitty had mentioned it. And I, I started looking at, I looked at a couple clips on YouTube and I was like, screw it. Let's just watch the show or watch the old movie. So I watched it. Such a good movie. But I was obsessed around that same time with stats. I was reading blogs. I was doing mock lineups. I was watching games with other nerds and like soccer or uh, baseball nerds, excuse me. And we would like do all of the advanced stats we could possibly get our hands on to like justify why the manager was wrong about whatever thing. (laughs) Um, like I hate, like I loved Bobby Cox for like no different than what we do with soccer. Correct. <laughs> correct. And so, and basically I moved to Italy. I went to school there. I fell in love with soccer. I gave up everything but baseball when I was over there. Cause I didn't want to waste my time. Cause I, I didn't want to waste my time there. Right. If I spent time keeping up with all the other sports, cause I was just a sports fanatic about everything. So I was like, I'm only watching baseball here or, or then I'm going to make it, take advantage of my time. So I watched soccer there and I, I fell in love little by little with the U S men's national teams. I came back here and I just was watching tons of soccer and little by little soccer just overtook how I did baseball, which was just at the nerdiest level possible, including like attempting to write like blog article, blog posts and articles and stuff about baseball. So like I was super into it little by little soccer just overtook it. CFC overtook it. And I, then I started reading, uh, and I still do. I read, I listen to podcasts. Uh, I watch TIFO football as well. Um, I just, I'm very into anything and everything soccer related. I want to know all the intricacies because yeah. I can't do things halfway. Yeah. So I talked about TIFO and, and James Lawrence Alcott. What would you say are a couple of podcasts that you would want to shout out that Pod- at least are good entry level for somebody? All right. So first, I'm going to not answer your question. It's the non-entry level, which is, which is the double, the <laughs> double, double pivot. pivot. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was trying to get you to stay away from. So so if you are if you are already a soccer nerd and you're listening to this, like, First of all, like you can skip this episode because you might not, you know, you may not think that this is good or bad. But um, the double pivot is like the nerdiest. They're only stats all the time. They're fun. It's so um, good. But by the way, like if if you're not a big soccer fan or a big soccer nerd, you may not enjoy it at all. Um, so that that's that one. I listen to Total Soccer Show, which I know you used to listen to a lot. And I don't listen to as much anymore, mm-hmm. but I, I used to listen to it all the time. Soccer One Hundred and One is the greatest podcast about the basics of soccer. So if you just look up soccer 101, it's from TSS, the total soccer show. Um, if you want to, if you don't understand the offside rule, which is fine, like you don't have to admit it out loud, but you'll listen to that. You will understand the intricacies of the offside rule in audio form. It is perfection. It is it. And the reason we're not calling this soccer 101, Smitty and I talked about this is that show is way better than anything we will do, but they won't have the insight into how we think about stuff because everything's a little bit different, how we think about it just because we have our own opinions and we talk on this podcast. So if you want to know how we think about stuff, it, this hopefully will be a good explainer and podcast, but also we will talk about it with a CFC lens. Mm-hmm. So everything we talk about will come back to CFC and those Soccer 101 episodes are not about um, CFC, obviously. So Yeah, and I think something important for us to do with this series is to break down concepts extremely simply. So it just helps soccer become more fun to watch like the episode that we're we're doing now what is a six and i don't know if we've talked about this but it's kind of a it's a super nerdy thing to be in love with the six because it's just who gives a shit uh it's a defensive midfielder um but it's such a nuanced position and it's so important 
to how a team runs, even though it may not get any glory. I think technically all. it's the most important position on the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about some of why that is. Let's just transition transition straight into it. So what is a positional number? And and for this, uh, we can talk a little bit about formations, but maybe we'll do an episode just about formations. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, I think it's fair to, while we will reference other formations as we go through some, maybe some CFC history stuff, the classic formation that most people think of is a 4-3-3 when they do numbers. And this season, we expect that Rod Underwood is going to play with a 4-3-3. So it is much I think it is, is appropriate to use the 433 as our base formation when we talk about all of these numbers, uh, including the six. So I'll start it a little bit and then I'll let you guys clarify a little bit. So the goalkeeper, um, classically, numbers one through 11, the goalkeeper wears number one. So the goalkeeper is the one, but people don't call them the one, they just call them the goalkeeper. Um, you know, usually don't have like, yeah, Alec, Alec Reddington was playing the one. Like people don't say that, they just say he was playing goalkeeper. Um, outside of that, you have your four defenders which are the two, three, four, and five, mm-hmm. but it, they don't align straight over two, three, four, and five. I always get them confused. I don't call them, and I don't refer, for that reason, I don't refer to defenders as numbers. Um, Matthew does sometimes, so I'll let him make sure he's got them right or we've got them right for the two and the three, which are the outside backs, but I think the two is on the left side. Two is on the right side. He's shaking his head at me. Uh, so I'll let, I'll, <laughs> I'll let actually let Matthew talk a little bit about the defender numbers, which we could talk about at some point, but this will make sense. So we're looking at a one- one goalkeeper in line, four players in a in a line on paper for your four defenders, and then three midfielders. And we'll talk about the six, which is the deepest, the closest to the defenders of this, the three midfielders, and then the three forwards as well that are up top. But we're going to talk about the six, and we'll talk about kind of where they sit on the field. But I think it's helpful to think about the numbers and how things are numbered. So tell us about, a little bit about defensive numbers just so we uh, kind of know what we're talking about. So an actual soccer historian would be able to explain this a little bit better but in, back in the really old days of, I think, English football, uh, the numbers, like you, the number you wore was not the number that you liked or wanted to wear. The number you wore corresponded to the position you played. By the way, in the French Cup currently, you ha- they have to start in the French Cup wearing uh, numbers 1 through 11. That's wonderful. So Messi was back wearing the 10 instead of the 30 the other <laughs> week. That's gross. That's really funny. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I, I fully support somebody wearing number 72 so, because yeah. they feel like it. That's, that's Thank YouTube. God for the Italian league. That is you too. By the way, I prefer one through 11. I'm a bit old school on that. I don't care that much, but like, you know, you're a good English boy. So, yeah. okay. So, so that's how, that's how the numbers have became associated yes. with positions. And, and so right, right back, you've got the two, then you go over to left back for the three. You know why that was? No, I do. We can talk about it on another, okay. another podcast, but yeah. Because uh, it didn't used to be a bank of four. The two the two players used to sit right mm-hmm. in front of the goalkeeper as you had two defenders, not four defenders. Uh, okay. So the two and the three were right in front. and then But they were wider. And eventually they started pushing them out and numbering them that way. So the okay. two is the, the right back. The, yeah, the two is the right back. Tifo just do a video about, yeah. yeah. Okay, but okay. I've, I watched the same thing. There's also some really good books we could talk about on other, pod, on other episodes. But I've read a couple tactics books or books about the history of tactics, not about like, yeah. So it's really interesting okay. when they all changed. I still get them wrong though. <laughs> Which is why I refer to them as left back and right back. Because I think that's much more descriptive. Mm-hmm. But 6, 8, and 10 in the midfield, which we're going to talk about the 6. That, like 6, helpful. 8, and 10 is extremely helpful. Uh, and yeah. much more descriptive, I think. Yeah. So the easy way to remember is that the even numbers are on the right-hand side and the odd numbers are on the left-hand side. So the right back is the 2. The left back is the 3. The right center back is the 4. And the left center back is the 5. Gotcha. I 
Matthew sometimes does refer to them as the four or the five or the two or the three. That's only because I really prefer a left footer at the five, and I make that point way too often for you guys. I, I don't know about you, Smitty, and I don't know if you agree with me, but I think when on this podcast, and, and when you're talking about soccer numbers, I think most people refer to them as the left center back and the right center back, Usually. and the left back and the right back. Is that how you think about it, Smitty? Yeah, I don't I don't use defensive numbers very often. I, I've tried not to. Early, like with defenders. With, I think midfield is really the only yeah, time. Six, eight, midfield, midfield and then the number and nine, the which is the, the and your primary striker. Matthew uses seven and eleven. I never use seven and eleven. Yeah, I don't either. I, so I also I also try not to use the the two and the three because it gets more complicated when you have say not when you're not playing a four three three. Like if you're playing three center backs and then you've got two wing backs, like do you call them seven elevens? Do you call them twos and threes? Like it gets a little hairy yeah. in there. And and that's why I think left wing back and right wing back is much more descriptive. Yeah. So that that gives people if you're thinking about the four defenders that line up from one side of the field to the other. You at least know that that's the two, three, four, and five for most people. I don't think you need to know which one is which. But the next person in a four, three, three, so that's a four flat four defenders. Then it's one, like kind of, if you're thinking about the field and it was divided up into lines going up and down, like a graph paper essentially, and you're going left to right looking at it, or and you're going forward towards the goal, they will be offset. The four defenders will be in a line on the paper, but offset up from them one set of graph paper lines would be the six and then ups uh, offset. Another set of lines forward would be the eight and the 10, but we're not going to talk about the eight and the 10 too much offset forward again, seven and 11 offset forward again, the nine. So you're going front to back, pushing attackers forward. The six is the defensive midfielder, the midfield that sits back closest to the defense. Did it, yeah, is, it, it is. does that make sense for everybody? I think mm-hmm. clear as mud. Yeah, and you'll also hear the number six referred to as a defensive midfielder, a center defensive midfielder. If you play FIFA, it's called a CDM. Yes. Um, so, so how many sixes play usually in a four three three? Depends. Yeah, it does, like a classic four three three is one, but you could say like a four two three one is also a four three three because there's three midfielders. Um so and then like you can have you can have two midfielders. Man United just a few weeks ago had three center defensive midfielders because they don't have a good one. So they're like, <laughs> let's put three guys that can kind of do it. Maybe they'll equal one. So yeah. they had like a flat three like right in front of the center backs and the midfield. It was interesting. So I this um there's a types of six question here. It might be it, before we do types of six. It might be useful for us to to mention the players that have played in that position. Yeah, good call. So that so that people who are still trying to catch up to speed can have an idea of like who they've seen on the field and where they've kind of played. So before. let's let's think about the uh, if you start. I mean, if you were watching for a really really long time. Actually, let's just go back towards uh, a while. So if uh, maybe maybe the most classic defensive six that's ever played for Chattanooga Football Club was Captain Matt Aldred. Yeah. yeah. If you played in a four three three or a four two three one, he was the player who s- stayed deep usually, who broke up play. He was very very defensive. His job was to win the ball defensively and then pass it short. Usually, he yep. wasn't a long passer. Uh, he could run box to box, but he wasn't the fastest guy. So most of the seasons he played with us, he played deep and just protected the defensive mm-hmm. center back. So he would sit in front of the center backs and just be another defensive player. And then your outside backs, your right back and your left back of those four, those outside defenders could go forward and get forward. And if you think about this year, um, Tate Robertson played 
in that position. When, when Tate was playing in the center, he was oft, often playing as, as one of usually the deepest six. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you were playing that kind of flat four in midfield, he was one of two sixes, essentially. Yeah, and if you think about how Tate played compared to Matt Aldred, or I guess just say Aldo, but um, <laughs> they occupied the same part of the field, but they played the game drastically different. Go on. Matt's a, Matt's a classic destroyer, which we'll explain a little bit more, but Tate is more of like a deep-lying playmaker, so he's going to come back to get the ball so that he can you know spread it out wide or you know progress it by dribbling or passing forward. Okay, so uh, explain it to me like I'm five. What do you mean when you say he comes back to get the ball? So he's in the midfield. You've got your goalkeeper. Probably the goalkeeper has the ball or a center back has the ball. So think about Spunky or 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 Rich. Um, they've they've got the ball. They're looking forward to the middle of the field. Tate is running backwards on the field towards them to receive to receive a pass. Or maybe he might even go behind them to to get some free space so that then they can pass it to him and maybe they can spread out wide to just expand the field. And how would that be different kind of from how Matt did it? I don't remember him offensively, honestly. Like I remembered a lot of short passes. Matt would get rid of the ball quick because we had a lot of extremely technically gifted players on those teams. Um, so I, re- what I remember Matt just So I, I think I think the difference there is that the and I'm thinking mostly of 2016 Matt Aldred uh, playing in, in that as the base of the 442 diamond mm-hmm. or 20, 2015 Matt Aldred playing yeah, at the same, base of the yes, diamond same same type of type of thing yeah. those teams built a lot more from uh, from the outside backs and and those two those two center midfielders just above uh, just above Aldo so like Aldo Aldo would sit in there. And if he did get a ball, you usually bump it right back to to one of the center backs or one of the outside backs. And and the progression happened a lot on the wings because we had so many midfielders in the middle. Defense is con- concentrated in the middle uh, where all the players were and it allowed our outside backs to get forward on the outside. Right. So, And when you say the wings, you mean the outsides of the field. Yeah. The, towards we, the, we, we the sidelines. We built from the outside more. The difference when, I think, when Tate Robertson was, was playing the six for us especially last year uh, is he would come collect the ball, be in the center of the field. And then he was the one that would spread it outside. Also. And I think a key to this is stylistically or technically like the, the technical ability, Matt Aldred played short, quick, smart passes on the ground safely and kept possession. Excuse me. That, uh, that Holland beer is, uh, <laughs> it's making its way through my, through my system. Um, the 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 nice. way he played was short. Yeah, listeners are like, "What in the world?" Uh, he played short, quick passes, kept it kept it safe, and progressed the ball and let somebody else, like you said, do the work. Tate Robertson has the technical ability to hit very long and accurate passes in the air. Additionally, to hitting passes short. So when he does drop deep, as Smitty was saying, comes back and gets the ball. Maybe even comes in behind the center backs. He was able to pick up the ball pick up his head, look forward, and instead of playing a, a pass that's 10 yards on the ground or 8 yards on the ground or 15 yards on the ground, forward or to the side, which he could also do, he could pick his head up and hit a 40-yard ball across the field to the to one side or across the field to the other or straight up the middle, depending on what we were doing. And those longer diagonals are, and diagonals meaning they go not just straight ahead, but 
let's say he dropped down a little bit towards the right center back and picked up the ball between the right center back and the right back, he could hit the ball across the field to the left side in the air past the 50-yard line and on a football field. And you could have James Kasak, for example, running onto that ball and receiving the ball. So the defense has come a little bit closer towards the ball on the right side of the field in our towards our goal, and now there's space on the left side of the field, and he's able to hit that ball because he was he's a deeper-lying playmaker with a lot of range with the ball, similar to an Andrea Pirlo. Not that he is Andrea Pirlo, but that's a thing that Pirlo did. Pirlo would hit really long diagonals. And if you think about, uh, if you've been watching soccer a long time, you think about Andrea Pirlo versus Xavi, right? Xavi, not the same as Matt Aldridge at all, but he hit a lot of short and medium passes on the ground first time into space, but he played the ball on the ground a lot. He didn't. He could play some diagonals, but he wasn't looking for long diagonals, whereas Pirlo loved to hit a ball where you didn't think he could hit the ball to mm-hmm. oh, and into an area in the air that a player was running to into space, creating space that way. The example, the examples here, if you want to go back and look at some clips of Tate Robertson being a deep-lying playmaker, is the Stumptown game in August where he'd pick the ball up in the middle of the field from one of the center backs and he sprayed a ball out to James Kasak, who was able to beat a man, cross it in, and that's how we got to the the two um, the two non penalty goals against Stumptown in, in that August match. Um, that's probably the best example, and and that and that's happened happened multiple times in 2021. Uh, but as an example of of how he would pick the ball up deep and then spray a diagonal uh, in, into into space. Another player that that played the six nominally for us was Tebow Sharmi which a lot of folks listening to this may not remember if you weren't watching back in 2014, but 2014 is the season that I, I came into deep CFC fandom and Tebow mm-hmm. was running, 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 running from box to box and playing that role very differently actually than Aldo and, uh, or Tate Robertson did. Yeah. Tebow was, was really more of a 10, I would think. I mean, he's more of an, a center attacking midfielder. Uh, think, think like a Luis Trude, think like an early days, Juan Hernandez, uh, so what did he what did he do that was different in the uh, he was in the re- base and so two things were happening he was responsible enough uh, with his work rate and his defending to be the deepest midfielder uh, in that diamond the deepest midfielder meaning the midfielder closest to the defend- to, to, to the, the defenders. defenders meaning he has to do the most defensive work because if he gets beat yes they're in t- yeah. much closer to goal but the other thing the other thing that happened it was less it was less about him. He was probably just better suited for the position, but like nice. that defense, that defense was good, like really good, and it allowed our offense to be better because our offense was a little bit more YOLO. And I mean, like Charmy, whereas someone like Matt Aldred would really, when the ball went forward, would usually stay back and still kind of protect the 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 defenders, and the outside backs would go bombing forward, and you'd kind of have like two central defenders and a Matt Aldred just kind of mostly chilling back, helping being, being options in possession in 2014. Uh, I think we were, uh, James Moore was on the left side, still getting forward a decent amount. Uh, but I, I don't think we had as much penetration on the right hand side from the right back. And so it that not having that extra man all the time allowed Charmy to creep forward a little bit. I wouldn't even call, I wouldn't even call it creeping forward. So we, we played a lot in transition that year. We so, played a ton in transition, and a ton of direct play as well. And what that meant too, is that Charmy would make a pass. And so Matt Aldridge would make a short pass and stay deep and, and protect the back line. Right. And let others get forward. Like you just said, Tate Robertson 
similarly, make a long pass, make a short pass, but he didn't venture forward too much because his job is to stay deeper and make sure to protect that back line too on defense. Charmy would make a pass and then make a run and then receive the ball again, then make another pass, and then he would be sprinting towards the box as if he was a striker or a winger up top trying to score, and he there'd be nobody back. But but that midfield also had some like some good balance where somebody would stay home or whatever else. But he was going truly like goal to goal. We call it box to box from the penalty box to the penalty box as the six, which is just not common anymore. No. Bastian Schweinsteiger did it, but he wasn't a true six. But he used to play truly box to box in a four two three one. Which we'll, when we talk about formations, it'll make a little more sense. But like players that play truly like box to box. It are few and far between. What's a box? The box, the penalty box. So the goalkeeper has that penalty box in which it's drawn on the field, the big uh, rectangle in front of his goal, his or her goal. They can they can pick up the ball inside of that box. That is the box. So penalty box to penalty box. Most players, there are very few players on the field that are tasked. In, in fact, a lot of times no player on the field is tasked to be truly box to box because mm-hmm. a lot of coaches and a lot of formations, your forwards stay forward. So maybe they go like, a little bit past the halfway line in de- on defense, and they go all the way to the opponent's box. And your defenders do the opposite. They go from your penalty box to the halfway line at most. And then your midfielders, depending on how they're set up, might go truly box to box. They might only go, you know, whatever. Yeah. But he was a player that went truly box to box. We probably talk a lot more about box to box when we talk about what a number eight is. Yes, um, which is also a beautiful position as well. I just like midfielders in general. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Um, Smitty, can you talk a little bit about uh, Richard Dixon and Nick Spielman playing the six um, as sometimes part of a double pivot? So there were Mm -hmm. two sixes at the end of last season. Yeah, and the reason it's called a double pivot is because they will pivot off of each other. One will stay and one will go. One will go a little bit farther into the attack. One will sit back and protect the back line. But they don't both go. Correct, because if they do, that's a bad idea. (laughs) So... We had an opportunity last season to protect our back line a little bit better. So Coach Fuller's solution for that was let's put our two best defenders to protect our the rest of our defenders. And it wasn't they didn't always play at the same time. Sometimes just one of them played, but it was moving a center back to the six. Yeah. So Richard Dixon, who's not he's not necessarily classically a center back. He was a wide uh a wide defender, but he uh for for us he played um as a as a center back. Um so you know, our farthest back defenders. Um so him and and Spielman would be in the midfield to protect our back line. So they're in charge. They I would I would classify them in that protector destroyer type role if somebody is dribbling to our goal they're the ones that are going to step up and try to snuff out that attack before it can happen when you say destroyer what do you like i mean the goal of a destroyer is to either foul the player or preferably win the ball but if you can't mm -hmm. win the ball you need to foul the player essentially right yeah absolutely It's, it's the position in midfield that is designed to reduce the amount of attacks that the center backs or the defenders in general have to deal with. And your center backs a lot of times are in the box. So if they're in the box, they cannot commit a foul because that would be a penalty. Your six oftentimes is sitting right outside the penalty box, your own penalty box. You can commit a foul there. So you don't want to give up dangerous plays. And so those players, when when you say destroyer, I think there's an undertone of if I can't blow this play up defensively by stopping the play, Mm -hmm. I'm going to blow this player up. 
yeah. by stopping the play right. and make sure they can't make a play on the ball. And Matt Aldred was excellent at that mm-hmm. at all times. Um, and I think from what you're saying, Spielman and Dixon were good at that as well. They yeah. were the destroyer type that they either destroyed the play by by keeping by taking the ball or they destroyed the player. Yeah. Um, and that's a little bit oversimplified, but I think that's fair. Yeah, for sure. And just think about how many times um, uh, Rich would come sprinting forward and just completely take a guy out or <laughs> intercept a pass and then come sliding in. So he was he was tasked with destroying that play. And if you miss there, it's very dangerous because they're oftentimes one-on-one with your center back. So it's like such a risky role and you have to mm-hmm. play players there that make good decisions and who are smart. The reason why I said earlier that it's, for me, the most important position tactically on the field is for that reason right there. You have to have someone who understands positional discipline, who understands when to step and vacate the that protection space because they have to win that ball. Uh, they have to know when to take a foul or when not to take a foul, mm-hmm. which is just as critical. Yeah. I mean, um, if you're playing against if you're playing against a team with excellent free kick takers, for example, like if you remember playing against the Atlanta Silverbacks back in the day when Junior or whatever junior burgos burgos that's right i was, I was gonna call <laughs> borgois and i'll say that's not right burgos yeah junior burgos who or like playing against marcus nagelstad like someone who's an excellent free kick taker like when you think about playing against a team like that you have to be careful where you commit those fouls because if you take a risk and you commit a foul to stop a play and then that player now has a dangerous play because they're very very good at it um smitty we have one- I, th- I think that deserves an episode of its own fouling is winning episode. Yeah. I, I think that will for put sure it, happen. Put it on the board, put it on the board, put it on the board. Um, Smitty, tell me a little bit about the metronome, the metronome as a, as a type of six. So you, we saw this a little bit with CFC over the past two years. Um, Juan Hernandez did not play as far up the field as he did during our, um, in PSL days. And one thing that Juan is incredible with is, is passing one touch passing, which is whenever, as soon as you receive the ball, you're passing it either back or to somebody else. A metronome is important. The same reason it is for any type of music. It keeps time. It sets the tempo. Tempo is very important. If you're trying to work the ball towards the goal through like multiple passes instead of, you know, like quick, boom, 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 play style. So if you if the rhythm of the the rhythm of the game matters because if you're mm-hmm. if they if the player knows if a player on your team knows when you are going to pass it based on kind of the rhythm of the game they can make time their runs mm-hmm. and time their movements to go along with that if you're too late to pass it the defender can get there yeah. if you pass it too early maybe the player isn't free into space and the defender can get there mm-hmm. and I think that's a really underrated um, thing the metronome the keeping rhythm because you get into a rhythm and you get into a flow state and you're able to just play with a particular rhythm to a game and settle into that rhythm. And it's a literal rhythm of, of kind of how things are passing and the timing of everything. Mm-hmm. And some players are very, very good at that. Like Juan, like you said, and some players maybe aren't as good at it. And so not every six can be a metronome. Yeah. So we've talked about three specific types of sixes that protector destroyer role, the deep line playmaker role and the metronome. And we talked about some CFC players that have played those types of roles. Who would you guys talk about? Let's let's start with the destroyer in modern football. Who would you guys say has played those positions the best? 
Well, I think the best destroyer in modern football is N'Golo Kante. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, N'Golo Kante is also not just a destroyer. He's able to play some other positions and do some other things well, too. Yep. But he is... Uh, you watched Leicester win the title in 2015 in mm-hmm. England. Yep. And he was a big part of that. Um, and he went to Chelsea, and they immediately won the title. And then with France, they won the World Cup. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear that N'Golo Kante was central to all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's impossible to dribble the ball through the midfield when N'Golo Kante is on the field. And he allowed, so if you think about, I know we're getting a little bit further out of the simple stuff here. You think about playing Paul Pogba with France along along with N'Golo Kante. It allowed N'Golo Kante, or N'Golo Kante allowed Paul Pogba to just be free to do all the things Paul was good at. Mm-hmm. which is, and still is good at, which is do the crazy offensive stuff without the defensive responsibility because you have a guy behind you that can just mop up and clean up everything. Yeah. Uh, there's more. Another player? Yeah. Um, somebody that's pretty relevant over the past season that's a destroyer, somebody like Pierre-Emile Hoiberg, um, who played for Southampton and now and now Tottenham. He runs around like a madman. Like, Conte's <laughs> always in the right spot. Hoiberg is not, uh, but damn it, if he sure isn't going to work hard to get there. So he's sprinting around everywhere, and he's going to foul you. Matthew? Yeah, I think I think Casemiro is a really good example of this mm-hmm. as well. Uh, now, obviously, when you plays for Real Madrid. Yeah. Now, when you play for Real Madrid, even if you are a destroyer, you can also do other things. Let's yeah. not kid ourselves. Uh, yeah, but, that's but what, he is. That's what Breezy was talking about with Conte yeah. as well. Like he is. The best possibly ever at breaking up play yes. in the midfield, um, but he can do everything else. It just doesn't jump off the sheet. That's also, also that's also a relatively new phenomenon for yeah. him too. Like he was he was an incredible destroyer back when Lester won the title, and he's added other things to his game since then. Yes, which is you know just go forward wild. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Um, Fabinho, for example, for Liverpool um, li- fans of, that have watched. Some some European soccer and seeing Liverpool play Fabinho um, and Jordan Henderson are two players that play the same position that play it very differently. Yeah. Fabinho is he's able to pass the ball well. All of the players at these levels are able to do other things well, but they have w- at least one elite trait, and the destroyer is the elite trait that Fabinho has, uh, that Ingolo Kante has, that uh, Pierre Emil Hoiberg has. Like yeah, let me mention one player and Casemiro that and and, and let's transition this to how we might expect a six to play for Rod Underwood's CFC. It's Fernandinho at Manchester City. Another player He's who, a bad boy. Another player who sits in, protects the center backs, breaks up play, destroys things. Not much anymore. It's Rodri now. He's like he's like forty five years old now. But But he's still awesome. <laughs> but just but just a couple years ago, I mean, think about think about who is central. Uh, in, in the defensive aspect of the game, who is central to Manchester City being able to control matches. Mm-hmm. And they racked up almost, like, what, 110 points a couple years ago or something crazy like that? There is... He, he, was, he was instrumental into, into how Manchester City played. And we know that Rod takes a lot of influence from Pep Guardiola and Manchester City right now. So I look at... I look at a player like Fernandinho... Uh, prime Fernandinho, what he was able to do for Manchester City. And I just won't be surprised to see us have a destroyer type player at the six. 
in 2022. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. Also, I think we saw in in Rod's last um, season at Stumptown that he had a the player that was tasked with doing the least amount of offensive passing of the ball and like hard work. Well, I don't mean hard work defensively. I mean offensively was the six. Yeah, the the six broke up play was disciplined. Made a lot had to make a lot of really good decisions, but did a lot of short passing. Yeah, and I was going to say he's like he was not like it wasn't like he wasn't involved at all. But it was a lot of it was a lot of short one twos just to keep the ball moving without having to make big diagonals or or really you know, through lines and gaps type passing. It was all it was all just short stuff to change angles for other players. Yep, and the most important part was protecting the back line because if you're right back and your left back, who I guess we'll do episodes on at some point maybe, but like your your outside defenders are going forward to attack that six is super important to sit deep and protect the center backs and potentially go out wide to the right or the left where the right back or the left back would be to help defend or if then transition those the other team is on a fast break coming down towards the goal or fill in and for one of the center backs like if, if the if one of the center backs is in a better position to step to the ball you know there might be you know a center back might shift over the 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 six might drop in to take that kind of space uh, you know, the positional d- discipline is just so important there. Yes. So who do we think on this roster of returners and new players might play that position? I mean, if you want to destroy her on the roster right now, it's Richard Dixon. Yep. Think about, think about what, so like, it's no secret to anyone that watched CFC last year that our midfield struggled at times. Uh, we, we were just not, we had, we, we had trouble controlling truly controlling the game from, from midfield so much to a point where think about the direct play in the fall. Like we started really bypassing midfield, setting up, setting up the defense to be able to absorb some pressure, boot the ball forward so that mistakes were not made in possession in midfield. At times, even when we were playing that, you know, we were playing that back three, Richard would usually be the right center back of that back three at times. Think about San Diego away with Alec McKinley's injury. Richard gets moved into midfield. Or Kai United Strikers away, Alec McKinley's red card. Richard gets moved into midfield. Uh, or or a couple of those games at the end of the season where Richard would be, would be playing maybe alongside Nick Spielman or Nick Spielman alongside Tate. We were trying to create that kind of destroyer Or Richard role. alongside one. Yeah. We were trying to create that kind of destroyer role. And I think... I think he's an obvious, obvious candidate for it uh, in 2022. If it's not Richard Dixon, Smitty, do you have a new signing who you think you'd be excited to see at the six or you think Rod might put at the six? Yeah, I'm curious to see who we still sign. I think Colin Stripling is a really good candidate for that. Um, I think to call him a pure destroyer doesn't give him enough credit for what he is good at, but he's also very good at that role and can bring other things to it. And if you if if you're nerdy like us and you went and watched Colin Stripling's highlights, you will see at the beginning of his highlights it says center back as his second position, uh, defensive midfielder as his first position. Now we know that he played last season for Rod a lot more in the eight position, so he was not the six, not the deepest line um, midfielder, but a little bit further forward. But he also did played a little bit at center back and did a lot of defensive work. So I think that as well. He's a good, really good candidate for that uh, that six. So let's go back to a couple more um, 
deep lying playmakers. Yeah, uh, I think we can go over this one pretty quickly. Yeah, because it's not as relevant as it used to be to the modern game because a lot of your defenders have just gotten better with technical skills, so, so, so they you, can do a lot of that work. So what you mean? I mean, what do you mean? Like basically, like the midfielders no longer have to do as much of the offensive output. Well, from a deeper position. Um, you've seen that deep lying playmaker role transition into the metronome, which we'll talk about. Um, but if you think about it classically, um, a deep lying playmaker would be somebody like Andrea Pirlo, who was advanced in his career, couldn't pass the ball better than anyone in the world, period. Um, and he couldn't move that well. He removed the defender from center defensive midfielder um he had he had <laughs> he couldn't move that well so he had there was always a joke about him drinking wine while while playing <laughs> right and he could have because he just kind of stayed in his little area outside of our their own penalty box and just start blasting balls everywhere and they happen to have two of the best box-to-box midfielders in the world correct at the time. Paul Hogba, on either side of him three. Paul Hogba used to be able to defend and he ran everywhere Along with Marquisio and Arturo Vidal, Vidal. And, Arturo Vidal who, like, and Blaise Matuidi for a while, too. Uh, Matuidi, I don't think, was there yeah, at the same time. He came, was after. There. he came after. But also, they had like incredible defenders. Oh, that's true, that's true, that's true. They had three incredible defenders that, that helped them out. So they didn't... It was it was okay. Like He was like a special position. We They designed the team around what he was so gifted. Which was, was hitting those long balls, short balls, whatever, but he could just dictate the entire game because mm-hmm. he could literally pass the ball from one corner of the field to the other corner of the field, which almost no one in the world could do. And it was impossible to defend because you don't have enough players to cover all the corners of the field at the same time. Do you guys think there's anyone else that's relevant really in the midfield? That's a deep lying playmaker. There are a bunch. There are a bunch of people who do it to a lesser extent now. Like I'd or, say Hubenefsch from wolves is pretty similar to that. He's, he's, a destroyer as well, but he also is is really gifted at. I mean, at look, playing long balls. Torreira does it for Lucas Torreira from Arsenal that now plays at Fiorentina. Does it for Fiorentina. Like there, there are player, there are players who do it. But Andrea Pirlo did it at a level that was so much above people before and mostly after him mm-hmm. that I think that's the easiest just look. And if you if you have not ever watched Andrea Pirlo play, just look up Andrea Pirlo highlights. You will be shocked at the type of passes he hits because you'll be like, what? How did? He hit that directly into stride to that player that was 70 yards away on a no-look pass. Like, it's unreal. I think I would add here that the need for a deep-lying playmaker like that has gone away at the elite level because center backs at the elite level now are are just also... They're not Andrea Pirlo passing level good. But the center backs... So much better than they used to be. Center backs can now distribute the ball... Just from the center back position, you don't need a midfielder to come back and get the ball all the time. Well, look, I mean, look at look at Nick Spielman last year, mm-hmm. and and Richard hit some some really good ones too, and Sean Russell had a few, but like Nick Spielman, especially in our lineup last year, hit a lot of long passes over the top that were excellent. And and when we played with Ian McGrath, where we would hit it to Ian McGrath's head, and Ian McGrath would head it on to somebody, that was a very very valid way of doing that. And in the past, the long old time head ago, pass. that was not common for center backs to be able to hit that ball accurately to a player or into space. And like like you both just said, like center backs have evolved. So mm-hmm. I, let's let's briefly go here for a second. The reason why I think you will see a destroyer at the six 
and, and possibly Richard Dixon playing that type of role. Think about the center backs we have signed at the moment. Like Nick Spielman's coming back. Great ball playing center back. We just signed Frankie Martinez from Stumptown. Also a great ball playing center back. They can already do those types of things distribution wise in possession. You don't need Richard Dixon to do that. You need Richard Dixon to do a bunch of other things. Yeah. Do the things that he's good at. Yeah. And he can he can also distribute the ball, but not not like those guys. Yeah. Generally speaking. Yeah. Those guys are just better passers. Uh, let's move on to the metronome real quick. Currently in the game, I would like to posit that the best metronome currently playing or the best example of the metronome is Jorginho. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. For Chelsea and Italy. And I, w- I, I bet you a lot of people just don't know who Jorginho is that is a casual soccer fan. I think if you watched him, the only reason you would know is because he takes penalties and they're very unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, he's also a good metronome. Xavi, for example, he was the maybe the best ever at it, at least in my lifetime of watching soccer. Yeah. They, you do not notice them because they just keep play moving in a way that is intelligent and quick, kind of how you described Juan Hernandez, when you keep the ball moving short and keep the rhythm of the game going and keep the ball just moving around and not trying not to turn it over and trying to make dangerous things happen. Like that is a thing that you don't notice when it's going well, because you're not hitting the Andrea Pirlo ball over the top to a player that creates a goal scoring opportunity. You're hitting it 15 or 20 yards to a player that's then hitting it to another player, 15 or 20 yards and the ball is just moving. And it just looks like people are playing soccer, but it's a massive, massive difference between when you have a guy that can do that or a girl, I guess they can do that. And, the women's, so- women's soccer at some point, maybe we'll talk a little bit more because the tactics do vary in women's soccer as well from men's mm-hmm. soccer. There are some things that carry over equally between both games and some that are very, very different. But uh, the metronome just keeps things going and a good metronome you may never notice. Yeah. But could be the most important player on the field. Yep. Um, let's see. Let's look a couple more. Did we miss anything, guys? Um, I know this is a little bit longer. Hopefully our, our episodes after this will be a little shorter, but we wanted to give an introduction to kind of why the soccer nerd uh, shows the how to be a soccer nerd, why we wanted to, and where kind of where we came from. Anything we missed? Yeah, I would say I don't know if there's anything that we missed, but I would ask for feedback, ideas, recommendations. Are there certain positions that you really want to know about? Yeah, um, or is there something that we can explain better? Or is there something about the game of soccer that you would like us? That you're, that you're just dying to know. Yeah, send a tweet, send an yeah. Instagram, send a Raven, you know. Carrier pigeon. Somehow. Yeah, definitely. Well, boys, if, if someone wants to find you on the internet and send one of those uh, carrier pigeons or uh, a DM or something to, to give you feedback. And also, if you liked this episode, like we would love the feedback. If you hated it, we'll also take that feedback. But the feedback is helpful because these are episodes that, of course, we enjoy doing, but if we know people like them, we can put more work into them and really kind of flesh them out a little bit more. So, Smitty, where could they find you on the internet to give you feedback? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at a Smitty Nose. Matthew? You can find me on Instagram at I am Caniglio, and you can find me on Twitter at Whiskey is Fine. You can find the podcast at the Section 109 pod on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, producer Jay Man- Mans those, and you can find me on the internet. Thanks for listening, everybody. Peace.